Hello, welcome back to our study of the Gospel of John, and today we're going to do the rest of John chapter 3, but first I want to revisit uh, John 3.16 because I remembered some things that we talked about last spring with John 3.16 that I forgot to talk about last time. Uh, and something I've talked about before is uh, God so loved the world, the many different ways, the many different places that Scripture presents atonement, salvation, reconciliation, the work of Jesus, and God's desire to save in broad terms, universal terms. Uh, we already had that with John the Baptist in John chapter 1 when he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, and John 3.16, God so loved the world. Uh, later, and we may get to this today, uh, the Samaritans say, We know that this is the Savior of the world. Uh, St. Paul talks about God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Uh, the word world, who does that leave out? Nobody. It's an inclusive term. Can't get more inclusive than that. Um, there is a quote from Martin Luther. I looked for it, couldn't find where it would be from. But Martin Luther is reported to have said something like this. I take greater comfort that John 3 says God so loved the world than if my own name were written there. I would always wonder if there was some other Martin Luther somewhere that it was talking about. So the word world is the highest comfort for us. Um, Later, when we get into John chapter 4, we're going to have an illustration of what does it mean, God so loved the world. Uh, John 3.16 is very beautiful because of its brevity. Only one verse. Uh, people have called it a gospel in the, the gospel in a nutshell. Luther called it their uh, Evangelium in Kleine, the, the gospel uh, in a small package. Uh, it is beautiful in its simplicity. So now we are going to go back to or pick up where we left off last time and look at John 3. Uh, John 3.22. And uh, this is after Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. Uh, that's what the after this is. Um, so after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and was baptizing. Uh, if I think of it, I'll throw up a map uh, and just give us a reminder that 
Judea was in the south. Uh, so Jesus and his disciples were in the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and was baptizing. That's in contrast to verse 23. John the Baptist was also baptizing in Enon near Salim where there was, because there was plenty of water there. People kept coming and were being baptized for John had not yet been, had not been thrown into prison yet. Um, the disciple John in his gospel has these recurring cycles. I've talked about that before. He talks about the first subject, he talks about the second subject, he talks about the third subject, then he comes back to the first, maybe the third, maybe the second, maybe not always in order, uh, but he has these things that he keeps coming back to. And so back in John chapter one, you have Jesus, divine origin with God in the beginning, and then there was a man who came from God, and his name was John. And he wasn't the light, he was only a witness to the light. Uh, and then there's more about John uh, uh, in the later part of chapter one. Uh, and now he comes again. Uh, and then by chapter five of John, we see John being spoken of in the past tense, and that probably means John has been thrown in prison. John may have even been executed by this time. Uh, the Gospel of John doesn't go into any detail about uh, Herod's run-ins with uh, Herod Antipas or uh, John preaching against Herod's adultery or anything like that. John doesn't mention it at all. He just says here, John had not yet been thrown in prison. Um, so uh, we think about uh, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is really has few main characteristics. The first, uh, first is his job. His job was to be a forerunner. Uh, forerunner was uh, a word that, well, it goes back to the times of kings, goes back to ancient times. Uh, if the king was coming to your town, the forerunner would go ahead of the king and say, King is coming for a visit, uh, prepare everything, sweep all the garbage off of the street, maybe whitewash those houses, uh, get everything ready because the king is coming for a visit. Um, John the Baptist came as the forerunner for the Messiah, uh, an announcer who says, here he comes. Another thing, Another characteristic of John the Baptist is his great humility. Uh, this is the section where John will say, he must increase and I must decrease. Uh, he understands his place in God's kingdom and he also understands his job as forerunner. He's not the main attraction. He's only sent ahead to prepare. So let's 
uh, read 22 to 30, and then we'll come back and talk about some of these things. Uh, so, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing in Enon near Salim because there was plenty of water there. People kept coming and were being baptized for John had not been thrown into prison yet. Then an argument broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew about purification. His disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one of who is with you across the Jordan, about whom you testified, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. John answered, a man cannot receive a single thing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and listens for him is overjoyed when he hears the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, uh, backing up. Uh, Jesus is in the Judean countryside. Judea is in the south. John was baptizing in Enon near Salim. We think we know where that, that was. Uh, that would have been uh, not far from the Jordan River, uh, but just south of the Sea of Galilee, so a little bit farther in the north. So Jesus and his disciples are working in the south. John the Baptist is working in the north. Ainan near Salim, uh, on the handout, uh, I do have a map, and I also have a link to a video about uh, Ainan near Salim. Ainan seems to be springs or pools that are fed by springs. Uh, John was not always baptizing in the river. Uh, now, verse 25 says, An argument broke out between John's disciples and a certain Jew about purification. Uh, something we know is that in their homes uh, at that time, Jewish people had ceremonial baths. And it wasn't necessarily like a bathtub. Uh, it was more like a, a walk-in uh, spa. We called them a mikveh. And people had these in their homes. There was steps. It looks like a, a stairway to nowhere. Uh, four or five steps that go down kind of a squarish uh, tank or tub. You walk down, uh, splash water on yourself, and then walk back up. Uh, one place where they find a lot of these was uh, on the west side of the Dead Sea. Uh, and there was a sect, we might call them a cult, uh, a sect of Jews called Essenes. Uh, and they were, we think they may have been the people who copied the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
they were big into, they were very much into ceremonial washing. Uh, so this argument between John's disciples and a certain Jew could have been in a scene. Uh, they were very much into ceremonial washing. Uh, to me, verse 25 and 26 don't seem to be connected other than to, to uh, just talk about the occasion. Verse 26, uh, the John the Baptist disciples come to him and they say, uh, Jesus is competing with you. It almost sounds like they are jealous as disciples of John the Baptist, and they're asking John, why aren't you jealous about Jesus becoming more popular than you? And John responds very humbly. Uh, a man cannot receive a single thing unless it's been given him from heaven. Uh, and John knows his place as forerunner. He knows his job as forerunner. I am not the Christ. I've been sent ahead of him. Uh, then he has an interesting word picture. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and listens for him is overjoyed when he hears the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine is now complete. Uh, something different between cultural difference regarding weddings between our time and their time. In our time, the, we have brides magazines. We don't have grooms magazines. Back then, if they would have had magazines, they would have had grooms magazines. Uh, the groom was the main attraction at the wedding. Uh, in our time, the bride seems to be the main attraction. Uh, and so John is saying, I'm not the main attraction. And he says, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm only the friend of the bridegroom who stands and listens and I hear his voice and my joy is complete. Uh, he must increase, I must decrease. Um, that is the last that we hear from John himself. He says, my joy is now complete. My work is done. And then he steps aside. Uh, verse 31 to 36 seems to be John the disciple, John the evangelist. Uh, uh, giving his explanation to what just happened. Uh, so... John says, uh, the one who comes from above is superior to everyone. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in a way that belongs to the earth. The one who comes from heaven is superior to everyone. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. The one who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. In fact, the one whom God his sense speaks God's words, for God gives the Spirit without measure. Father loves the Son and has put everything in his hands. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. 
The one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, God's wrath remains on him. Remember my comment back when we were talking about John 3.16 and the verses that followed that how I think the quotation marks should end at John 3.15 or the red ink should stop at John 3.15 and that 3.16 through 21 may be John the disciple explaining what Jesus just said. And this section is very much like that. And I don't think uh, this translation does not put uh, any quotation marks around this section. This, uh, uh, it's regarding this as John the disciple giving an explanation to what just happened. Um, so the one who comes from above is superior to everyone. He's talking about Jesus again. And then he says that again. The one who comes from heaven is superior to everyone. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in a way that belongs to the earth. The disciple could be talking about the difference between Jesus and John the Baptist. Jesus is from heaven, so he's superior to everyone. John the Baptist is speaking, uh, speaking in an earthly way, using the, the illustration of a bridegroom. Uh, but then uh, he goes back to talk about Jesus. He's superior to everyone. He testifies about what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That's really one of these, one of John's loops. He goes back to chapter 1, where he says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He revisits that here. Uh, the one who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. In fact, the one whom God has sent speaks God's words, for God gives the Spirit without measure. There he could be talking about Jesus, definitely talking about Jesus, but possibly talking also about John the Baptist because he was sent from God. And that's from chapter 1 also. There was a man who came from God. His name was John. He himself was not the light, but only spoke as a witness to the light. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has put everything in his hands. Jesus says the same thing later. All these things are entrusted to me by my Father. And in the connection to Matthew, all power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Uh, and then verse 36. Uh, you remember I said an interesting study would be look for John 3.16 Everywhere it occurs, or everywhere you see bits and pieces of it. Well, we're not even out of chapter 3 yet, and here's a piece of John 3.16. One who believes in the Son has eternal life, and then we see a bit of John 3.18. Uh, the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, God's wrath remains on him. So that's John chapter 3. Now, we're entering John chapter 4. And with John chapter 4, 
we have kind of a change of structure in the Gospel of John. Uh, that John will go for a while about with what I would call uh, doctrinal exposition, uh, speaking about teaching, speaking about doctrine, spiritual concepts, and then he'll throw a little narrative in. Then he'll go back to uh, exposition on doctrinal spiritual concepts. So in the beginning was the word, all things were made through him, that's spiritual, doctrinal concepts. There came a man from God, his name was John, that's narrative. And then he was not the light, the true light that gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. Okay, that's doctrinal exposition. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, looks the Lamb of God, and he hands off his disciples to him. He got more narrative. Then Jesus goes to the wedding of Cana, narrative. Jesus cleanses the temple, narrative. Uh, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, that's narrative. And then uh, the section John 3.16 and following, doctrinal exposition. People came to, to John the Baptist, and uh, uh, that's more narrative. I'm not the bridegroom. He must increase, I must decrease, and then doctrinal exposition. Okay, now we've got chapter 4, and it's all narrative, all description of events as they happen. Uh, so this is a change in the structure. Um, and we remember... Jesus was in Judea in the south, and now he's getting some threats or some uh, feedback from the Pharisees, so Jesus now is retreating uh, and heading back to the north. Jesus found that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Though it was not Jesus himself who was baptizing, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back again to Galilee. Jesus retreats. Uh, and then verse 4 says, he had to go through Samaria. Um, and so we need to talk a little bit about Samaria and Samaritans. And to understand Samaria and Samaritans, we know the story of the Good Samaritan. That's connected to this also. Uh, and we got to go back to the time of King Solomon. Around 900 BC, King Solomon died. And shortly after King Solomon died, the kingdom split. And it gets a little confusing at this point. But uh, after Solomon's death, uh, we talk about the northern ten tribes as Israel, and then Judah, and Benjamin then become the kingdom of Judah. Uh, and the kings of Israel, the kings of the northern ten tribes, 
they don't want their people going down to Jerusalem to the temple to worship anymore. They want to keep everything, they want to build nationalism for Israel in the north. So uh, the kings in the north set up golden calves. Uh, they started worshiping Baal and Asherah. And that's by the 800s you have Elijah and his dealings with King Ahab and the prophets of Baal. And then by the year 722, the kingdom in the north had gotten so wicked, God had enough. And he sent the Assyrians in. They carried uh, the northern ten tribes away. That's why they're often called the lost ten tribes. Uh, the Assyrians had a strange, I suppose you could say it was kind of a cruel practice of transplanting peoples that they had conquered. So they took people from Israel and they moved them uh, far away into other lands that they conquered. And then they took people from those other lands that they conquered and they brought them to Israel. And they did that because they thought it prevented uprisings. If you got a bunch of foreigners drawn together they're not going to fight for the land that they were born in and grew up in. Uh, they don't care about the land. Uh, if they just conquered the land and left the people there, these people might up, rise up because this was our land and now you're occupied. Uh, so they did. the Syrians did this transplanting of peoples. And so then what happens in Samaria, as a people, they're ethnically mixed. And so the Jews would look at them and they would say, these are not pure descendants of Abraham. And then as far as religious uh, aspect goes, at first the Samaritan religion was a mix of the paganism that they had brought from these other lands and the paganism that was going on, Baal and Asherah in, uh, in Israel. Then later, uh, the Samaritan religion became more like Judaism, but they limited their scriptures only to the five books of Moses. And there's a reason for it. Same thing that happened to uh, Israel, something very similar to that happened to the people of Judah because God gave a promise. He didn't scatter the people of Judah. Instead, the people of Judah were sent off to Babylon or were taken to Babylon by the Babylonians to serve them. And that was in the year 586. And then about 70 years later, Persians conquer the Babylonians and tell the Jews you can go back and you can rebuild. Uh, and so the Jews went back to, uh, to Judah and Jerusalem to rebuild. And then the Samaritans asked, can we work with you to rebuild the temple? And then the, at that time, the Jews told them, no, your religion is not pure. You're a bunch of foreigners. You may not help us rebuild the temple. So then the Samaritans got mad. 
and they built their own temple and uh, that division then uh, only increased over time. So uh, the Jews would have looked at the Samaritans and would have said they're not pure uh, descendants of Abraham, their religion is impure, their temple, they worship in a, uh, a false temple. And then the Samaritans would have said, uh, uh, we wanted to work with them, but they rejected us. They're always picking on us. They excluded us when we wanted to join them. Uh, and you can think of many other when there's a state of hostility there, then people make all kinds of assumptions uh, and uh, prejudices grow. So that was the state between Jews and Samaritans. So that's all of that is behind this verse. So he had to go through Samaria. When Jesus told his parable about the good Samaritan, I think people would have gasped when he suggested the Samaritan is the guy who helps the man who is lying half dead in the ditch while the priest and the Levite pass by. Uh, that's exactly what Jesus' point was. This person was a neighbor to the person in need. Uh, even though he was a Samaritan and had nothing to do with the injured person, he had compassion anyway. That was Jesus' point. Even a foreigner who Maybe the guy in the ditch wouldn't have liked him as a person. Didn't stop the Samaritan. He helped anyway. Uh, so verse 4 says, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Um, perhaps Jesus, of course, Jesus knew what was lying ahead of him. Um, so that's the, the background of the Samaritans. Uh, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the piece of land Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Then Jesus, being tired from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Uh, the line about the, the piece of land Jacob gave to his son Joseph that might be talking about the land assignments for the tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim. Those were the sons of Joseph, uh, which would have been most of Samaria and the area south of Galilee. Uh, Jacob's well, this reference in the Gospel of John is the only mention of Jacob's well in the Bible. Um, Jesus, tired from the journey, sat down, and it was about the sixth hour. Uh, John is a little inconsistent in his, the way he talks about time. If he's thinking about Roman timekeeping, uh, it would have been 6 p.m., 6 in the afternoon. Uh, if he's using Jewish time, it would have been noon. Uh, because Jesus is tired from the journey, perhaps walking all day, uh, 6 p.m. seems more likely. Uh, then, uh, 
verses 7 to 9 uh, are Jesus meets the Samaritan woman. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Uh, some cultural differences we might miss. First, we remember uh, the Jewish and Samaritan resentment. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's also something, this is mentioned later, uh, between with roles and relationships between men and women at that time. Men and women did not mix socially except for family events. Uh, in verse 27, later on, the disciples come back from buying food and they were surprised to see Jesus talking with a woman. And so this may have been a double surprise for the woman. Why is Jesus, why is this person talking to me? A Jewish man talking to me, a Samaritan woman. Uh, some people have speculated uh, that this woman may have been an outcast from her own people because of her lifestyle. Five times divorced, now living with a man, not her husband, and she didn't want any shame or ridicule from her neighbors, so she went at six in the evening at a time when nobody else would be drawing water. And so that is a possibility to, to that. Uh, and none of this stops Jesus from talking to her. That she's a Samaritan, that she's a woman, and that she probably doesn't want to talk to anybody. It doesn't stop Jesus. Uh, and this is an illustration of John 3.16 for us. God so loved the world, even Samaritans, even Samaritan women, uh, even a Samaritan woman five times divorced and now in an uncommitted relationship. Uh, it doesn't stop Jesus. God so loved the world. Jesus teaches with parables. And we're familiar with his story parables, but Jesus draws a parable from something right in front of him. Uh, he has a visible, physical parable with the water. And then, like we saw with Nicodemus, Jesus takes some confusion that somebody has, uses that as uh, something to keep the conversation going. Just as Nicodemus didn't understand being born again, this lady doesn't understand what he's saying about living water. Uh, so, how is it that you, a Jew, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, she said, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? 
You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his animals. Jesus answered her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. Rather, the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water bubbling up to eternal life. Sir, give me this water, the woman said to him, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Okay, we'll talk about what's happening here. Uh, first, Jesus uses her confusion to keep the conversation going. Jesus begins... <coughs> confusing her and begins taking this in a spiritual direction with talking about living water. <coughs> living water is an expression that distinguishes living water, moving water, like from a stream or a spring, distinguishes that from stagnant water, like water that would be sitting in a puddle or a pool. Uh, some people, some translations have rendered this also as life-giving water. Uh, and the Greek uh, uses a participle, so it would simply be living water. But life-giving water for people who are living in a dry climate, water certainly is life-giving. It's something that they very obviously can't do without uh, and in verse 11, right away she thinks of the physical. Uh, Jesus is offering living water, and she says, you don't have a bucket, where are you going to get it? Uh, and then Jesus takes it back to, to the spiritual. Whoever drinks the water, I, uh, this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty again. We think of the gospel promise and how we hear it, how it remains in our hearts and minds, how it comes back to us, um, how we remember a passage, a line from a hymn uh, when we're in a time of need. That is the gospel as living water, the message of Jesus as living water. Uh, so she says, sir, give me this water so I won't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And now Jesus turns everything around. Jesus told her, go call your husband and come back here. I have no husband, the woman answered. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say I have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews insist that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. This is what I think is going on in her mind. Uh, first of all, what does Jesus reveal about himself by asking this embarrassing question. He's the all-knowing Son of God. And think of that, again, of that 
speculative idea. This woman went to the well when nobody was around so she wouldn't have to endure scorn and ridicule and shame from her neighbors. Well, what does Jesus do? He goes right for it. He goes right where she doesn't want to go. And so she decides, oh, this is an uncomfortable subject, so I'll change the subject. Uh, this is a Jew, so maybe I can get into an argument with him about which is the right temple. And then I don't have to talk about this uncomfortable thing I didn't want to talk about. Uh, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews insist that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She doesn't want to talk about her five husbands and the number six that she's working on. She'd rather get in an argument about something something else. So Jesus goes with it and says, takes it in a spiritual direction, direction again and says, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will not worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But as a time is coming and is now here when the real worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So Jesus goes with the new subject, talking about the temple. And I want you to stop for a moment and think about the temple in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, the tabernacle that came before it. What was the purpose of the temple and everything connected with it? The temple, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, the festivals, the priesthood, all of these things one way or another, pointed ahead to Jesus, what he would be like, what he would be doing. And so that's why Jesus doesn't hesitate to go with this subject about the temple. The time is coming. Your worship isn't going to be connected to a place, but to a person. Uh, your worship isn't going to be about ritual, it will be about spirit and truth. Uh, worship in spirit means worship in the heart. God is spirit, not limited to any place. Those who worship him must worship in spirit, with the heart, and in truth. Um, later on, Jesus talks about you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And there he's talking specifically about the truth about himself. Worship in spirit, worship from the heart, worship in truth, knowing the truth of the gospel, knowing the truth about Jesus. And this woman... Uh, now may be thinking, he took my bait, 
to argue about the temple, but he's taking it deeper than I ever thought. He's talking about being connected to God in spirit and in truth. And I've been disconnected in both ways by living as I pleased. Maybe I can change the subject again and ask about the Messiah. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus said to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Here is another who is Jesus moment in the Gospel of John. Who does Jesus reveal himself to be with his knowledge about this woman's past? Who does Jesus reveal himself to be as he talks about the temple? And now he says it. I am he. Um, and now what's the woman's reaction? Just then his disciples returned and were surprised that he was talking with a woman. I talked about that before. Yet no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking to her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back into town. She said to the people, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They left the town and came to him. Meanwhile, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Then the disciples said to each other, Did anyone bring him something to eat? Jesus told them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four more months and the harvest will be here? Pay attention to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They are already ripe for harvest. The reaper is getting paid and gathering grain for eternal life, so the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. Indeed, in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap a harvest for which you did, not, did no hard work. Others have done the hard work, and you have benefited from their labor. Okay, what Jesus did with Nicodemus and what he has done with the Samaritan woman, Jesus does with his own disciples. We talked with Nicodemus about new birth. Nicodemus misunderstands, but Jesus gets his attention. Uh, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman and talks about living water. And she misunderstands, but Jesus has her attention. And uh, he takes it in a spiritual direction. And the disciples say, Rabbi, eat. And he says, I have food you don't know about. Uh, somebody bring him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, everything is ripe for harvest. I'm going to send you into the harvest to reap what you didn't sow and others did the work and you will benefit. Um, Jesus is following a pattern of using a misunderstanding to get people's attention and keep the conversation going. Um, now, uh, think of this woman who doesn't want to talk about her past. You think of that speculative thing. She goes to the well at a time nobody else will be there. 
What happened to that now? She runs into town and tells everybody. I met somebody who knows me so well and I never met him before. And he told me everything I ever did, as embarrassing as that is. And she's marveling and she's amazed at him and she's saying, could this be the Christ? Here we are. Uh, verse 39, many Samaritans came from that town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. When the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his message. They told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this really is the Savior of the world. So what happened to the woman's shame and her uncomfortability with other people and her fear of, of ridicule? That's gone. Uh, the wonder of Jesus has driven that out. And now what happened to her neighbors? To their ridicule or to their uh, feeling of shame about the woman? That's gone too because they're amazed by Jesus too. And what is the final word that they say? We know that this really is the Savior of the world. Who is Jesus? Savior of the world. And what does God so love the world mean? Even Samaritans. Even a Samaritan woman. Even a Samaritan woman with a with a spotted past, reminds me of a children's song. We used to learn it for Christmas. God loves me, dearly loves even me. That'll be all for today. We will finish John chapter 4 next time and uh, continue with John chapter 5. God's blessings on your week.